play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Your last meal is sponsored by Heritage Distilling Company. Craft and small batch vodkas, gins, and whiskeys. Drink locally, drink responsibly. Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Each week, we'll explore someone's perfect last meal to find out which food they find most delicious or nostalgic or comforting or gluttonous. And then we'll explore the history of that dish and more. (laughs) So if you're someone who listens to podcasts, if you're a hardcore podcaster, and if you live here in the Pacific Northwest especially, I'm sure that you've heard of today's guest. His name is Luke Burbank. Luke has many jobs. I host a show called Livewire, which is a radio show on public radio. I do a podcast called TBTL, and I do television stuff for CBS Sunday Morning. And Luke is also my buddy. We have had lunch together, dinner, I don't think breakfast. I don't know if that means that we can still call each other friends if we haven't had breakfast. But Luke, over the years, has become a big eater. I wolf stuff down like I haven't eaten in a month. Like if it were socially acceptable, I would take my food, I would go over to a corner, I would like hold the plate with a hand, and I would like stoop over the food and quickly shovel it into my mouth with my hand, uh, with my back to the room so no one could get it. That would be my kind of default eating setting. And then my wife will just be working her way through what she's eating, but because she hasn't eaten it as quickly as I have eaten mine, my thought is like, well, she probably doesn't want this. So then I start eating her food, and she's had to say like, can you please stop like eating all of my food because I'm not done with it. I'm just not eating like a freak like you are. I'm trying to be more thoughtful because my instinct from how I came up was just to just horf everything in sight. I love the word horf. Okay, so we're going to talk about Luke's childhood because this can explain why he is such a horfer. Luke grew up in a family of seven children. I came up in a a household which was full of love, Rachel, but not full of good cooking. My mom, bless her soul, was raised Irish Catholic in Philadelphia. Her mom passed away at a really young age. And so she grew up in this house where they ate the same thing every Monday night, a different same thing every Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Like each night had a scheduled thing. And the one kind of through line was it was all canned or, you know, salted or preserved in some way and then taken out of the can and heated up and then cooked well beyond whatever amount of cooking that kind of food should receive and then plopped on a plate and that was dinner. So this is the culinary heritage that I hail from. So one interesting fact about Luke is that he was a teenage dad. I think that he had a kid when he was 16 years old, and this is something that he talks about on his podcast, TBTL. I'm not revealing any secrets here. Uh, But when you're 16 years old, you know, you're not preparing the family dinners that you might if you're a parent of 30 or 35 years old. So Luke and his daughter Addie had a special meal that they used to like to eat together when she was little. It consisted of this one thing. It it largely involved this one thing, which was on Friday nights, I would buy this box of like, I think the the, the brand name was like noodles and sauce or something. Straight to the point. Right? Thank you. We're not getting clever. We're not trying to be cute. This is before the foodie movement. So we just want to let you know what's in here. It's noodles and sauce. And by sauce, really what it is, is some powdered cheese mix, some noodles, you boil them up, you put some milk and butter in there. And you've made like a kind of a fettuccine Alfredo type of situation. I would buy a box of that. I would buy some of those um, like Grand's biscuits that come in the tube. That you get to pop? And I would, yes. I, it was like one of the great joys of my daughter's young life was getting to 
flack that thing open. And then I would get some broccoli because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a health conscious person. After we've downed 70,000 calories and carbs, let's throw some broccoli on, on the situation. That was actually my experience of the first thing that I would cook, too. Even though I came from a family that cooked really well and was into food, I craved all the junk food. And so that's what I would do is make that pastaroni and add broccoli to it and chicken. And I thought that I was this culinary master because I added things to the package. Wow. See, that never even occurred to me. I was so like, I don't know if it would be linear or literal with my thinking that I just thought like scientists have balanced the amount of powdered cheese and noodles that go into this thing, and anything I add is gonna throw off their careful calibrations. So you guys don't know this, but I am a a food detective as well. So I scoured the internet for about six minutes looking for this brand, Noodles and Sauce, and didn't find anything called Noodles and Sauce. So I don't think that is what it's called. Um, I don't know if Luke's purposely trying to keep it a secret so that you can't enjoy the fettuccine Alfredo of his youth, but it is not Noodles and Sauce. But I will continue to call it Noodles and Sauce so as not to throw Luke off. Game on! Yeah, game on! When's the last time you had Noodles and Sauce? God, I'm not sure. I mean, it was a long, long time ago. Also, part of it now is that I'm pretty careful with what I eat, mostly what the carb content is. And if I was going to eat that many carbs right now, I would want it to be something more delicious than some noodles and sauce. I would want to go to like a real Italian restaurant and get some really good pasta. I think that's how I'd want to use that. Like the Olive Garden? Day. Yeah, you know, just Hospitaliano, just the kind of place that when you're there, you're family. Okay, so let's move on to the question at hand. What would your last meal be? Well, from the extremely processed, uh, overly available, Americanized nightmare that is noodles and sauce, let me transition to a much more esoteric Taiwanese dish called Shaolong Bao which is a soup dumpling. Now, when people hear soup dumpling, and I've described this to so many people, their thought is it's a bowl of soup with a dumpling in the middle. But this is a dumpling with the soup inside the dumpling. And it is a beautiful, delicate, tasty thing, which is so hard to find in America. I think because it's really labor intensive to make these things that for the longest time, I only knew of being able to get them in L.A. at Din Tai Fung and in New York at Joe's Shanghai down in Chinatown. And I would honestly schedule trips in both of these places to some degree so that I could get Shaolong Bao. Like I would be like, huh, do I need to go to L.A. for this certain thing or not? And then I would think, well, I will get Shaolong Bao. Okay, I'm going. (laughs) So as of now, what is your dream place to get Shaolong Bao? Where's the best place that you would want it for your last meal? I think I would go to the... I, and when I say the original Din Tai Fung, I mean the, the first one in the U.S. as far as I understand it. I believe that they're based in Taiwan. So what Luke said about how they make the Shaolong Bao is totally true. It is very labor intensive. It is very time intensive. And it's really interesting to learn how they make the soup dumplings because everybody wants to know how do you get the soup into the dumpling. And the mystery is this. They make a soup that is made with a lot of bones and a lot of collagen. So it's very gelatinous when it's cooled. So they make this broth and then they make a meat mixture and then they mix the broth into the meat mixture. Then they roll out the dough. So their dumplings are hand rolled and they put a little lump of this meat in and then they fold it up. They do 18 folds per dumpling. And if you go to Din Tai Fung, they have kind of this zoo or aquarium of dumpling folders, which when you're waiting in line outside, you see all of these people inside of a glass case making dumplings. So they put this meat mixture in, and then when they steam the dumplings, 
that gelatin, that gelatinous broth melts and it becomes soup again inside of the dumpling. And so because it is so hot and soupy inside of the dumpling, there's a special way that you're supposed to eat it. So you take your Chinese soup spoon and you put a dumpling in and then you either use your teeth. I recommend using your teeth or chopsticks and you make a tiny little hole so that the steam can come out so you don't burn your tongue on soup. So how do I know so much about Xiaolongbao? Well, first of all, I have eaten my weight in them from Din Tai Fung. But second of all, I learned it straight from the source. David Wasilewski, managing partner of Din Tai Fung. So David owns the two Din Tai Fung restaurants in Seattle. And we have a lot of questions for David. So you're going to hear him peppered throughout this episode. But the first question is about the history of Din Tai Fung. Where did this restaurant start? Din Tai Fung started as a mom and pop shop back in Taiwan about 50 years ago. And it grew into this huge phenomenon. And we're currently at around 125 stores globally across 11, 12 countries. Mostly are all in Asia. We started here in Seattle about almost six years ago. And uh, we have plans to open two more in the next six months. Din Tai Fung is most definitely not a mom and pop shop anymore. If you've been to one, you know that it's a huge restaurant. It's very slick and it's actually very corporate feeling. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition to have this home style food that is a total comfort food. And then you're eating in a very corporate environment. But none of this seems to stop anybody from lining up to eat these dumplings. They make so many dumplings every day at Din Tai Fung. We probably go through about 10,000 dumplings a day per store. And um, we make everything from scratch. So um, we require a lot of people. And it takes a long time to train these dumpling chefs, um, generally about six months. Six months to make the perfect dumpling with 18 pleats. So I asked David what they do with the dumplings that don't turn out perfectly. And he said they just throw them away. It was the saddest thing that I heard all of that week. I felt very anxious and desperate to go in the garbage can and save all of the misformed dumplings and just eat them anyway. I don't need a perfect looking dumpling, David. But anyway, back to Luke. So how did Luke discover Din Tai Fung and its delectable dumplings? An ex-girlfriend of mine, uh, when I was living in LA and she's from LA originally, she said like, you know, have you been to Din Tai? And I was like, what's a Din Tai? She said, okay, on Sunday we're going. And we got in the car and we drove way out past Pasadena out into the like the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains to this crappy strip mall. And there's just all these people standing around in the broiling Southern California sun waiting to get into this little place. So Din Tai Fung is known for having these crazy lines. How long will you wait in line to get Din Tai Fung? Is there a limit? Like, will you drive somewhere and be like, nope, turning the car around? Or are you waiting no matter what? Again, I seriously traveled to cities to eat this stuff. I think the maximum amount of time I would wait would be probably 45 minutes. Unless it was like a Sunday brunchy kind of time, and this was what we had for the whole day. Like We were like, let's go to Din Tai Fung, and then we'll just see what else happens. In that case, I'd probably wait as long as it took. And there is seriously always a line at Din Tai Fung. Ask David. If you're talking about on weekends, um, you know, the, the average wait can be hour and a half to two hours. Uh, weekdays are definitely a little bit slower. Uh, the average wait can be you know, from half an hour to an hour. So part of Din Tai Fung's hype is the line. And that is something that I learned while interviewing an expert in waiting in line. That is actually something that people study. After this break, I talked to an MIT professor who knows so much about the science and psychology of waiting in lines. They call him Dr. Q. Uh, that seems to be my nickname these days, Dr. Q. 
You know, Q. Q-U-E-U-E. That's coming up next on Your Last Meal. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. All right, so it's cocktail time, and uh, we're making cocktails today with Your Last Meal's brand new sponsor, Heritage Distilling Company. We're here with the owner, Justin Stiefel. Welcome. Thank you. Thank Welcome. you for having us. Yeah, so you guys uh, make small batch craft spirits out of Gig Harbor. If you're in the Seattle area, it's local. Yes, we have a production facility in Gig Harbor. We also have a production facility in Eugene, Oregon. So I tried your grapefruit vodka at my Hanukkah party, and that was amazing. So it was just, we just did the vodka, soda water, ice, and lime. Yeah. Yeah. We, we call that an adult squirt. Oh, yeah, it was like an adult squirt. Yeah. And I was super stoked because I had a friend come, and I was like, look at all my fancy vodkas that I have from Heritage. And she literally pulled out of her purse a bottle of Heritage and was like, I brought Heritage, too. <laughs> and that made me so happy. And she said that she'd been to your tasting room in Gig Harbor and that she loves it and that Gig Harbor really needed a spot like that. The more we hear that, the more joy it brings our hearts that people are seeking and finding our products. as long as the line is at Din Tai Fung, you call in the experts. Richard Larson is a professor at MIT in the Institute of Data, Systems, and Society, and he has done a ton of research about the physics and psychology of waiting in lines. Queuing theory as a mathematical and physics thing has been quite alive for about 100 years, and oftentimes the psychology of queuing is more important than the physics of queuing. What is the psychology of queuing in, in your research? More than the duration of the delay in queue is the perception of fa fairness. So people will prefer a queue with a longer delay as long as they can be guaranteed first come, first serve. So that's one of them, the, the issue of feeling of fairness. The Machiavellian champion of queuing psychology are the Disney properties like Disney World in Orlando and Disneyland and Anaheim and around the, around the world. They seem to have mastered this, by the way. Orlando has on their staff about 18 to 20, quote unquote, Imagineers. These Imagineers have my background in operations research and industrial engineering, and they are basically systems scientists who design and test on an animated simulation every ride or amusement that's ever considered at Disney. And they include not only the physics and the engineering, but also the psychology of queuing. 
So they have some beautiful things that they do. First of all, the single serpentine line. Second, managing expectations. The idea in a service industry is to manage a customer's expectations and then always deliver beyond their expectations, resulting in a happy customer. So if you're in a Disney queue, you might see a sign that says, oh, if, if the line is out to here, you may expect to wait an hour before you get on to you know, Magic Mountain or whatever, whatever the ride is. But Disney actually overestimates that. So they want that to be more like 45 minutes, even though they tell you it's 60 minutes. Well, they've been waiting 45 minutes for a four-minute ride, but now they psychologically, they think they're 15 minutes ahead of schedule because of Disney managing their expectations and then delivering at a better level. That's really and, smart. So is, how common is that for um, some place to manage the line in that way? I was wondering if restaurants do that as well, uh, because I feel like that does happen a lot when I go up to the host station and I ask, how long, how long is the wait? I feel like you never wait as long as they tell you you will. Do they do that on purpose? Well, if they're smart, they'll do it on purpose. The, the thing with a restaurant, they're conflicted. If they overestimate, like Disney does, to make you happy when they finally seat you, they run the risk of losing you and you go to some other place where there's a less delay. I love our restaurant. There aren't that many I have experienced recently. It says, well, I'm sorry, Dr. Q, that uh, there may be a half an hour to 40 minute wait here. But while you're waiting as a small token of our appreciation for you being here, would you please accept a complimentary glass of wine for us? And also you and your wife can look at this menu and think about strategies for, for what you may be ordering. Now, that would be a classic case of how to manage the queue. First of all, you captured the person so they're not going to leave. They're very appreciative that you're giving them a free glass of wine. But actually, the company, the, the, the restaurant saves money because the, your occupancy time in the table is less. Because by the time you sit at the table, you don't have to look at the menu anymore. So the 10 minutes or so you have to decide what you're going to order is now absorbed when you're in the line drinking your free glass of wine. And so the turnover of people in the restaurant is increased by 20% or so. And so giving a glass of wine actually increases the number of customers dramatically that they can serve on a Friday or Saturday busy night. I don't know about you, but I don't experience that many restaurants who do that on a regular basis. No, and you would think that they'd be out a lot of wine, but by your mathematician skills, it does seem like it would be worth it. I think it's worth it. I am not aware of any Din Tai Fung that offers line wine. Hashtag line wine. Let's make this a thing, guys. Also, hashtag Quincy Jones, are you out there? But that's for another time. But the fact that they don't give out free wine does not stop people from queuing up around the block to get their hands on that sweet, sweet Shaolong Bao. You finally got a table at Din Tai Fung, and now it's time to order. What is that experience like for Luke? I'm really not a fun person to go to Din Tai Fung with because since I have been going for a long time now and since I've been to the original one, I feel like a real sense of... I know how it goes here. I know the system <laughs> and nobody tell me the system because you're assuming I don't know the system. Now, a lot of people who are normal and well-adjusted would just be like, fine, let the server explain the process. Who cares if you know the process? Particularly in the early days, they had to really over-explain it to people. And I was always just like, I know, I've been to the one in LA. So one night we all go to the, over to the Din Tai in Bellevue and there's, you know, four of us. And I'm ordering just like massive amounts of food. And the waitress at some point says, you know, you ordered too much food. Now, I was incensed because it was another way of her indicating that I somehow don't know my way around a Din Tai menu. And I was just like, I believe what I said was, this ain't my first rodeo. <laughs> um, and then proceeded to add to the order to prove my point and then proceeded to eat all of it 
without any kind of discomfort. Like it didn't feel at the end, like if you'd eaten two large pizzas to prove a point, like it was like, it felt like the right amount of food to me. And I mean, we, that was easily two bamboo uh, baskets per person, probably plus all the other accoutrements. I was going to say, I just that- like how you call it dintai. It's like, you're so down with it. You're so cool with it. You so went there in LA that you don't even need the fung anymore. It's just dintai. Who has time? I mean, do you understand that at the end of my life with how much I talk about this restaurant and this food, I'll probably save myself at least a day and a half not saying fung. But girls just want to have fung. That's what I've heard. (laughs) All right. So Luke is pretty braggadocious about how many dumplings he can take down. This raises the obvious question. How many dumplings can you eat? A ridiculous amount. I could easily eat three entire trays by myself. And I could, if I was working at it. Isn't that like 36 dumplings? Yeah, probably. Okay, that's a lot of dumplings. But back to the guy who runs Dintai. See, I'm super cool with it too. Our good friend David. I'm sure David has seen some people take down some dumplings. I once had a guy and he ate 88 pieces of Shalom Bao by himself, along with other food that he ordered with his family, which I thought it was amazing. It wasn't like he came in with the purpose to break a world record or anything like that. It was just one of those situations where he was eating and then he just kept ordering and he wanted more. And next thing you know, he had nine baskets of Shalom Bao dumplings in front of him stacked up and, and they're 10 per basket. So he, and there was only two left. So he ate 88 pieces. And he couldn't get the last two down. That's what I said too. But, uh, you know, I, I, 88 is pretty amazing. So, uh, so I wasn't going to make fun of him. 88 dumplings. Wow. I wish it was a real world record. I want to see him next to the lady with the really long fingernails. Remember her? She was standing over the balcony with the world's longest fingernails. The things I remember from my childhood. So 88 dumplings, that guy must have been super hungry after waiting in that huge line for so long. But what if there was a scientifically proven, most effective method of cutting that cue? Could we have saved this man's distended stomach from a fullness rarely seen by the naked eye? If only we had empirical data derived from a carefully controlled social experiment conducted by some kind of line genius at, I don't know, we already talked to MIT. What about Harvard? So my name is Felix Oberholzer G. I'm a faculty member here at Harvard Business School, and I serve as chair of the MBA program. This is what you're supposed to do. Get smart people to come on your podcast and explain things that you don't understand. Felix wanted to know if we could buy our way to the front of a line. He conducted an experiment in which people waiting in a line, unaware that they were being observed, were approached by researchers in disguise asking if they could cut in. There's always a person who's really dying to get that ticket or is dying to uh, get a meal or a slot at the DMV. And it should be possible to reallocate the spaces in the slots and lines. And yet we don't really see this all that often. Sometimes at the airport you see that someone who's just about to miss uh, his or her flight, that they would ask other people to let them in. But in general, cutting into lines is not something that you observe very often. And so I was curious about what if you offer compensation? What if you went up to a line, and this is literally the experiment, and you said, well, can I cut in here? I offer you $5, $10 if you will allow me 
to cut into the line. And so what we wanted to see is two things. First, are people more likely to, to let others cut in if you offer monetary compensation? And the answer here is yes. Uh, the more money you offer, the more likely it is that people will let you cut in. But then, interestingly and surprisingly, most people in most circumstances will not accept the money. The fairness norm kicks in in that it doesn't seem fair to exploit someone else being hard-pressed for time. The moral of this story is always try and pay people to cut in line because they're never going to take the money. And it sounds like your experiment also showed that people only will let somebody cut once. This isn't something that you can do regularly. Yes, this was uh, at the very end of the experiment. I was curious, since we found that people are more likely to let you cut in if you offer money, I was curious whether I could do this repeatedly. And I had an intuition that people would not be very happy about this. I tried to cut in multiple times with the same person. And sure enough, people people think it's completely inappropriate. Conspiracy theory. Is Din Tai Fung keeping the lines long on purpose? Our Harvard economist has answers. And spoiler alert, he also will ruin happy hour for you. After this. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. It's cocktail time. And today we're making cocktails with Your Last Meal's brand new sponsor, Heritage Distilling Company. We're here with the owner, Justin Stiefel. So the vodka that my friend brought over was your batch number 12 series, and yes. that is aimed towards Seahawks fans. Uh, well, um, it has nothing to do with football. Uh-huh. It took us 12 attempts to find the right recipe. Okay. It just happens to be people who have an affinity for our local national football team also greatly love that product. What a coincidence. You know, sometimes the universe aligns properly. You can go to heritagedistilling.com and that is where you can order any of the spirits you're hearing today. Go to heritagedistilling.com. Din Tai Fung is not a very expensive place to eat. And Felix thinks that the restaurant is keeping the costs artificially low on purpose so that people are excited to eat there. You see a line, you think the food is good, you're willing to wait in it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'll say two things. One is, and this is something that comes out of sort of medieval philosophy, thinking about the fairness of pricing. The rough idea is if prices reflect cost, that seems pretty fair to us most of the time. Are you charging me a lot of money because it's really expensive to make what you make? Or are you, which we then find very unfair, are you charging me a lot of money simply because there happens to be lots and lots of demand? Think about the backlash against Uber. The part of the Uber business model that people have the most trouble with is search pricing. 
Why? Well, surge pricing, we know, has very little to do with cost. just has to do with, oh, there happens to be lots of demand. Maybe we can capture some of the consumer rents. If a restaurant were to have dynamic pricing, one thing that works relatively well is if you describe changes in prices as discounts. So, for instance, you go to the Netherlands, uh, it's cheaper to buy uh, food in supermarkets during the afternoon, and they would say, oh, we're giving discounts to, you know, older people, pensioners, who maybe don't have fabulous, fabulous high income. Of course, what in reality, what they're doing is they're raising prices when people who, the professionals who need to shop at six or seven before the stores close, uh, when they pile into the markets, they know there's greater demand and as a result, they can charge higher prices. Interesting. So I guess that could be kind of how happy hour works in a way? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. We think we're, we're getting a discount, but really we're getting charged more when everybody's in the bar. Oh, so happy hours may be like what it actually costs them and then the dinner prices are what they tack on. That's right. Yeah. Whoa, this is very enlightening. <laughs> Who knew the economics <laughs> oh, no. of happy hour? I hope, I hope I didn't ruin happy hour for you. Well, don't we all feel ripped off now? All right, so we've been in line long enough. It's time to get back to the food. What exactly would Luke's last meal be? Juicy pork dumplings. Those are the ones that I, I really like. The pork chop that is you know, like breaded a little bit, cooked, and then put over rice. And then the green beans in garlic. The green beans there Those are incredible. The, yeah, what, what, what do you think they do to them? How, how is that possible? So I'm going to have him make a string bean so you can see how it works. Uh, we're going to have a quick fry of the string beans, and then we'll do a quick saute uh, stir fry. The whole process probably takes less than three minutes. For just being garlicky green beans, they are seriously delicious. And the process is so simple, it only does take about three minutes. So first they flash fry them in oil, and then they saute them in a wok with garlic and some secret ingredients that David wouldn't tell me about. And they always come out bright, verdant green and crisp tender. And the other thing I would do is, because again, back to the no carbs thing, I don't drink a lot of beer anymore. When I have Asian food, I always like to have a beer. And when I'm at Din Tai, I would like to have, you know, usually like an Asahi or a Kirin uh, or a Tsing Tao. Have you noticed how hard it is to pronounce the name of that beer? Some people call it Ching Dao. I feel like you have to Tao. mumble it because nobody knows how to say yes. it. So you're like, oh, I'll have a <laughs> like you kind of just you mumble right? through it. Yeah, because that's the people exactly... that try to pronounce it with an accent when they're white, that's really hard to listen to, too, because yes. it almost sounds racist. I'll have a Tsing Tao. Right? Like, I don't need to hear right. that. I can't. But it's like T-S. I know. So it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not good with tonal languages or really just tone in general. But, but anyway, my point being, I really like that beer and I really like to have it with those dumplings. And since this was my last meal, I would just be like, keep the beer coming. That would be for me maybe the most delight. Oh, and the company of my friends and family. That would also be delightful. Oh, then. But the beer would be way up there on the list. So speaking of family, before we go, I think we need to give an update on Luke's mom, who he points out that he loves dearly and is an awesome person and helped make him the awesome person that he is today. But in case you were wondering, Luke's mom has not reformed her culinary tastes. My mom has started to eat what I call an exclusively woohoo diet. <laughs> there is some place that she likes to shop. It might be grocery outlet. There's some place where when they mark the food way down, 
the markdown sticker says woohoo. <laughs> it's like a bright orange woohoo and then like 80% right off. And whenever we have a family get together, my mom will bring the most random assortment of food and it's all woohoo. It's we had a Easter meal and she brought marked down gogurt. <laughs> we had been like making a ham for like days. I mean, this was like a fancy Easter dinner with like white linen napkins and like a whole, it was a whole thing. And she brought gogurt. A ham with a gogurt like glaze. A, something you just put out there. And uh, <laughs> that was, that was a difficult one to sort of navigate because she kept saying, well, when are we going to put the gogurt out? And I kept wanting to say, mom, it's not, it doesn't really go with what we're trying to do. And that is Luke Burbank's last meal. Luke is the host of Livewire, co-host of the podcast TBTL, Too Beautiful to Live, and a frequent guest on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Original music by Prom Queen. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason. I'm Rachel Bell. And until next time, this is your last meal. But this juxtaposition... <laughs> I like where you're going. But this juxtaposition... Oh my God. <laughs> Blooper reel. We have an outtake. Uh huh.